Father, would you guide us this morning as we consider your word? I think of the man who responded to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is a condition where so many of us live. That we understand who you are and we respond to you in faith and yet we we feel the fleetingness of that faith, the temporalness of that faith, the frailty of that faith, the weakness of that faith. And there is a temptation to wonder if you will be faithful, if you will really preserve us as you, as you have promised, if you will really care for us, if you really indeed love us, and so, Father, as we, as we look at this text, would you embolden us, fortify us, strengthen us, not because we are great, but because you are great. And so would you give us a renewed vision of you? Would you give us a renewed satisfaction of you? Would you give us a new depth of understanding of, of your faithfulness? that makes you to be trustworthy. We love you, Lord. And we ask that you would guide us in this time. Would you give us hearts to apprehend the truth, a willingness to be conformed to the truth, and would you give me clarity with the truth? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. The question for our day is whether God is fair and whether he is faithful to his promises. Is God a faithful, covenant-keeping kind of God? Is God a faithful kind of God who can be trusted? And before we come to our text in Romans chapter 9, just consider for a moment what some other texts of Scripture tell us. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is faithful to through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. Those, those verses and a host of others address the very kind of issue that the Apostle is, is considering for us in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is about the faithfulness of God, the integrity of God, the trustworthiness of God. Even when God elects and chooses people to be His, to, to bestow His mercy on some, even when He chooses not to elect others and when He pours out wrath on others, God is a faithful and trustworthy God. 
And the question Paul is addressing is, will God really save those whom He has elected and called and promised to save? The question is not insignificant. And the question arises in Paul's mind about about God's faithfulness to preserve the nation of Israel. If God has has chosen Israel to be His covenantal people, if God has, has poured out His love on Israel in a very particular way, and the Israelites as a nation have not yet been saved, even after the Messiah has come, Israel as a nation has not been saved, is God a faithful God? Can we trust God to do what He has promised? And And Paul answers the question for us in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed. That that gets to the very issue before before him. It It is, has God failed? And he answers with a resounding no, God has not failed. He expands that answer in the following verses. In verses 6 to 13, he reminds us that that God has been faithful to elect and choose some among Israelites who would be His, and He preserves them in that salvation. In verses 14 to 18, he tells us that his mercy on some and his hardening of others has has been done to, to manifest his glory, to proclaim his glory, not just in Israel, but through the nations, so that the nations can see the mercy of God that is faithful. In verses 19 to 23, he tells us that, that God is greater than a potter, and a potter is sovereign over the things that he creates. And if a, if a potter is sovereign over the clay pots that he makes, certainly a God in heaven is more sovereign over his creation and we might trust him to be faithful to those things that he has created and chosen for salvation. In verses 24 to 26, he tells us that the mercy and hardening of Israel, mercy on some, hardening of others, has been for the purpose of enfolding Gentiles into the promises that were made to Israel. And God is faithful not only to save Israel, His people, but He is also faithful to save Gentiles that He's enfolded into the promise. And this morning in verses 27 to 29, the Apostle comes back to the central question about the nation of Israel Will God save Israel? Will God preserve Israel? Will, will God be faithful to the promise that He has made to Israel? And, and Paul's, Paul's gonna go back to the book of Isaiah in two different passages to demonstrate that nothing has gone awry. Nothing has gone wrong with God's plan. God has not deviated from His plan. God's plans have not been circumvented by others, but God is exactly accomplishing everything that He had intended with His plan. God is, everything is going exactly as, as God has designed it. We might say it this way, verses 27 to 29. God's elective salvation is always merciful and faithful, even to rebellious Israel. Even, even when Israel has rebelled, God has been faithful to His promises. He is a faithful God. We may trust Him. How is God's elective salvation 
a demonstration of God's faithfulness and mercy to Israel? How is it that, that we can look at the way God has poured out both mercy and judgment on Israel and say that He is a faithful God even to Israel? And Paul's going to give us three, three manners in which we might see God's faithfulness to Israel this morning. The first is given to us in verse 27. In His mercy, God has chosen a remnant of Israel for salvation. In His mercy, God has chosen a remnant of Israel for salvation. As we come to verse 27, it will be helpful for us first to see something of a background. Remember a background in which God has chosen Israel to be His people. And and you know this. We we talked about it last week. We mentioned this, have mentioned this frequently as we've made our way through this chapter. And we've we speak of this often, frankly, that God has chosen Israel in a particular way to be His particular people. He has elected them to be His people and His nation. We saw that last week, way back in in Genesis chapter 12. It starts with the life of Abraham. The promises that are made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That same promise that is made to Abraham there about, about a land that he would possess, a people that would come from him, and a blessing that he would be not just to the nation of Israel, but to all of the world, is, is reiterated again in chapter 13, and it's ratified in chapter 15, and then it's reaffirmed again in chapter 17. And this is an unconditional covenant, like our salvation There are no conditions attached to it. There's no if statement that says, well, if you, nation of Israel, do this, then then I, God, will be your God and, and you will be my people. No, it is unconditional. God simply says, you will be my people. No conditions attached. And that's just like our salvation. And, and notice as well that not just is, are there no conditions attached to this, this salvation, but, but, but the covenant was made by God and it was ratified by God alone. So flip over to Genesis 15, just a couple of pages from chapter 12. And in chapter 15, uh, God says, um, Bring to me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And, and he, Abraham, brought these to him and he cut them in two and he laid, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carpet, carcasses. Abraham drove them away. And while the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Verse 13, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at an old age. Verse 17, It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these two pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This was not a mutual covenant. 
It's not that Abraham and God together walked between the sacrifices that had been made. God alone walked between them. It is God's Word alone that makes the covenant. It's God's Word alone that ratifies the covenant with these sacrifices. This is God's promise. It is dependent on Him alone to fulfill it. And it is also not just not just God working, but it is a literal covenant. It's not a figurative covenant. It's not an anticipatory covenant in that, well, well, one day this is kind of sort of the way it'll be. It is a very literal covenant. Just notice verse 18 of chapter 15. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, that's the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All of these lands, he said, will belong to the nation of Israel. It's a literal land, a literal covenant, a literal promise. These things will be received by the nation of Israel because God alone has promised it. It is also an eternal and unending covenant. Notice what he says in chapter 13, verse 15. For the land which you see, he says, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. So it's not just a a blessing that you will receive now. It is an eternal covenant. Verse uh, 7 of chapter 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Verse 13, A servant who is born in your house who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Verse 19, But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you will call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. This promise to Israel. This promise to Abraham about the nation Israel that would come from Abraham is an eternal covenant. It is an unending covenant. It is a promise. It is a covenant that is made by the promise of God. God is the one who upholds it. God is the one who will accomplish it. It is all about God and His eternal promise. It is a literal land. It is a literal seed. Is it a literal blessing? We see all of those components, the land, the seed, and the blessing expanded upon in further covenants. So the, the land portion of the covenant is expanded in the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The seed part of the covenant is expanded in the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7. The blessing part of the covenant is expanded in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. God has God is made a promise. Now the question that Paul is addressing is, God has made this promise, we haven't seen it fulfilled. We we haven't seen the completion of this promise that is made, and worse, the Messiah came, and the Messiah was rejected, and if the Messiah was rejected, Will God give up on His people? Is, is this all been, has this all been a farce? Has this all been a, a charade? Has this, has this all been something that, that God will not fulfill? And if God won't fulfill His promises to Israel, then where does that leave us as Gentiles? 
Is God faithful? Can we, can we trust God? Will God be good to do what He says? And Paul addresses the situation of Israel's rejection of Christ and the lack of a complete fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant with a quotation in verse 27 from Isaiah chapter 10. And the question is, what does Isaiah chapter 10 mean? In verses 25 and 26, Paul was demonstrating through a quotation from Hosea 1 and Hosea 2 that God's mercy was large enough to include Gentiles into the promises that he had made to Israel. And here he is using Isaiah chapter 10 to demonstrate that God's faithfulness and mercy can be focused enough to draw their attention on an elect remnant of Israel and exclude some individuals from the promise while he keeps the promise to the nation in its entirety. Let's just unpack how Paul does that. Verse 27, he tells us, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. That verb, cries out, is not a, a word that refers to the loudness with which Isaiah is speaking but it speaks to the urgency and intensity of what Isaiah is saying. This is, this is essential. You need to listen. You need, to, you need to, to draw attention to this. Isaiah's original prophecy was a plea for the nation to, 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 to listen. Please, please listen to what I'm saying. This is, this is critical that you hear what I'm saying. And friends, nothing has changed in that, from that original intensity and urgency. The urgency that, that the Israelites needed to have in listening to what, what Isaiah had to say in Isaiah chapter 10 is still true in Paul's day and it is still true in our days. There, there's an urgency to listen to what God has to say. What, what was going on for Isaiah to feel this intensity and urgency that, that he might cry out and call out in this way? You may remember as I read from Isaiah chapter 1 that Isaiah's ministry was fundamentally to the nation of Judah, the two southern tribes of Israel. Um, Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So as Isaiah prophesied, he was primarily focusing his attention on the two southern tribes that we typically call Judah and not the ten northern tribes that are commonly known as Israel. And yet Isaiah started his ministry in about 739 B.C. while Israel was still in the land. In 721, roughly 20, about 18 years after Isaiah begins his ministry, 721, Assyria comes into the land and takes the ten northern tribes, Israel, into captivity in Assyria. So Isaiah started his ministry before Assyria goes, and then his ministry extends another 30 years after uh, Israel goes into captivity in Assyria, and then will culminate in the, ulti- in the ultimate rejection of God again, and then the two southern tribes, Judah, is, uh, are taken into captivity by Babylon in 605. So, so his ministry ends around um, uh, 689 B.C., after roughly 48 years of ministry, and then about 80 years later, 
the, the southern tribes also would be taken into captivity. Just a side note, Isaiah's ministry from a human perspective is a ministry of failure. In fact, Isaiah chapter 6, God says, I want you to go to this people, but they will not hear, they will not listen, they will not repent. And that is exactly what happened. They did not repent, and ultimately they went into captivity. Isaiah chapter 10, the section from which Paul is quoting, actually is a brief section about Assyria and what Assyria is going to come to do to the land of Israel. So listen, for instance, at the beginning of this chapter, and and in in chapters 10 to 12, uh, Isaiah is contrasting two kingdoms, the kingdom of Assyria with God's messianic kingdom. And here he tells us at the beginning of chapter 10 that Assyria will come as as his instrument of judgment against the ten northern tribes Israel. Verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. In other words, I have wrath against my people and I am sending Assyria to be my staff and my rod to execute my judgment against my people. So Assyria is the tool of God to accomplish his discipline against his people. Notice verse 12. Not only has God sent judgment against Israel through Assyria, but then because of Assyria's rebellion against God, it also is noted in verses 12 and following, so it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. So, Assyria comes as God's tool against Israel, but Assyria also is unrepentant, so God also judges Assyria. In the midst of that, you've got to be asking the question, well, what happens to Israel? Notice verse 20. Now in the day, now, excuse me, now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. And so here we find, in the midst of this promise of um, destruction, and wrath and judgment that is coming from God through Assyria, we find a corresponding promise. And the promise is that a remnant will return to Israel. But it's not just that a remnant will return to the land. Did you notice what he said in verse 20? They, um, a remnant of Israel... And those of the house of a Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, Assyria, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. They not only return to the land, they return to the Lord Himself. Notice verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to 
the mighty God. Not that they return to the land. They do return to the land, but but not just to the land, but they return to God Himself. He's restoring them to Himself in godly worship. What I want you to notice particularly, though, is that it's not the entire land, or not, not the entire nation that comes back. Did you notice verse 20? Now in that day, the remnant of Israel. The remnant. It's a, it's a specific group. It's a particular people. So, so it's not just a remnant. It's just not just, well, a few people that, that God kind of happened to keep together accidentally. No, it's, it's the remnant. It's the ones that God has specifically chosen and designed for being restored to the land. They are the ones that brought back. They are a particular people. And this, the, the, these verses are a reminder. Did you see that in verse 22? Though the nation of Israel is like the sand of the sea, though there are countless number of Israelites, yet it's only a remnant that will respond in faith to God. It's only a remnant that will be preserved. Even Isaiah is saying God has made a promise to Israel, but it's only a remnant that will be saved. Well, the question is, how is Isaiah, excuse me, how is Paul using the quotation from Isaiah 10 in Romans 9. And Paul is using this quotation to demonstrate that even in the Old Testament, while Israel was God's chosen nation, God had not promised to save every single individual Israelite. He did design and promise to save the nation, but that did not mean that every single Israelite would be saved. And just as there were unbelievers in Israel in Isaiah's day and a remnant of believers, so there also would be unbelievers in the day of the Messiah and there would be a remnant in the day of the Messiah. Unbelief and rejection of Jesus as the Messiah does not mean that God has been unfaithful to His promise, does not mean that God is unfaithful in general. In fact, we see this this very same idea of a remnant in John's Gospel. John chapter 1. It's a really... It's a really remarkable pair of statements that he makes. In, in verse 11, he says in John 1, He came, Jesus came to His own. That is, He came to His own creation, His own things. And those who were His own, His own people, He came to His own world, and those who were His own people did not receive Him. So he came to the covenanted people of Israel, and the nation of Israel rejected Him. And we know that the The Israelites rejected him. And the very next verse, the very next statement is, but as many as received him, to them he gave the the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. In other words, the nation rejected him, but individuals believed. There, There was a remnant in the day of Jesus. And this is, this is what Paul will say a number of times in the book of Romans as well, that, that salvation is not about genealogy. Salvation is not about nationality. Salvation is about faith in the promise of the Messiah, and salvation is about faith in the Messiah. Salvation is about faith in Jesus Christ. So he says in 2, 28, 29, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision that which is done outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So it's an inward working. It's not an outward action. It's not about where you were born. It's not about your nationality. It's not about your genealogy. It's about your faith in Christ. And he's going to reiterate that a number of times in this particular book. What, what this is a reminder of is that there has always been a remnant of believers in God and Christ. And God, all, God has always been faithful to that remnant as a fulfillment of his promise. There's always a remnant of believing Israelites in the past. There's always a, always has been a remnant of believing Israelites even in the Old Testament. We saw that in Isaiah 10 a moment ago. We saw that last week in Hosea 1, Hosea 2. If you're following along in your Bible reading plan, I can't remember if it's last week or this week, but uh, Isaiah, uh, Ezra chapters 1 and 2, there's a, there's a, a reference to the, the remnant that has believed and brought back to the land. There's, there's always been a remnant of believing Israel in the Old Testament. There is also a remnant of believing Israelites in the first century. So um, if you have kept a finger in Romans chapter 9, just turn over to Romans chapter 11. Now listen to what Paul says there. Romans 11 verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they killed your prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the Old Testament... There's always been a remnant. Even in Elijah's day, there's still a remnant. And then notice how Paul applies that. Verse 5 of Romans 11. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. There is a remnant. God is faithful. There's also going to be a remnant of believing Israelites in the future. So we'll look at Revelation chapter 7, and you're going to find God choosing from each of the 12 tribes of Israel 12,000 who will be His. 144,000 people as a remnant of faith in Christ. And then that will culminate in the fulfillment of God's promises when the nation one day, as a nation, will entirely be saved at the second coming of Christ We see that Romans chapter 11, verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. All Israel will be saved. He is keeping his promise to Israel by saving Israel individuals from that nation, and he will fulfill it in its entirety in the future. Romans chapter 11. And friends, all of these realities of believing Israelites combine to emphasize the fact that God indeed is faithful. He's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his promise to choose Israel to be his beloved faithful. And because he is faithful, he is trustworthy. Israel could trust him 
in the Old Testament. Israel could trust Him in the day of the Messiah when Christ came at His first advent. The the early church could trust Him in the first century. And friends, we can trust Him today. He is faithful to His promises. He cannot be unfaithful to His promises. He is ever faithful and ever trustworthy. There's another means by which we see God's mercy to Israel. It's given to us in verse 28. In His mercy, God will accomplish His choice of Israel. In His mercy, God will accomplish His choice of Israel. In verse 28, the Apostle quotes the next verse in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23. And again, just by way of reminder, that verse is referring to the judgment that is coming on the the ten northern tribes of Israel. Um, what we call the nation of Israel. And so it says in verse 23 of Isaiah chapter 10, For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. God will execute. That simply means God will accomplish. God will do everything that He has promised. He will not relent from His promises and He will not relent from His judgment. And the judgment is particular to the people of Israel as it's viewed in Isaiah chapter 10. Notice that the way Paul translated it, it's interesting. He says in verse 28, For the Lord will execute His word on the earth. Now, Now you're thinking, I would expect to see the word world, because as we think about the words world and earth, world refers to people, and earth typically refers to land mass. And so it's interesting that that the Paul would say that he's going to execute his judgment on the earth, on the landmass, because he's not, he's not judging the trees, he's judging the people who are ungodly. And yet, listen to what Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will execute this in the midst of the whole land, as in the land of Israel, as in his covenanted people. He will Discipline, he will judge the people that he has covenanted with who have rejected him. Notice how the apostle emphasizes what Isaiah says as well. He will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. In fact, the, the way Paul constructs this sentence, the word order is, is interesting and it is emphatic to to particularly draw attention to the to this last phrase thoroughly and quickly we might we might give the sense of it this way for the word thoroughly and quickly the lord will execute on the earth and, and paul wants us to to hear that this is going to come with suddenness with quickness it, it's going to come quickly the lord is is not going to be patient unendingly, and when that judgment comes, it will come with suddenness and with swiftness. How is Paul using this verse from Isaiah chapter 10? He is reminding us that while God is faithful in saving a remnant for Himself, that does not preclude Him from being wrathful against those who reject Him. This is a reminder that not all who are Israel are Israel Remember what he said in verse 6? It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel 
who are descended from Israel. Not, not all Israelites are really Israelites. Oh yeah, they've got circumcision. Oh yeah, they're born in the right place. Yeah, they've got the right lineage. But their hearts are all wrong. They're far from Christ. They don't belong to God. And they are worthy recipients of His wrath and His judgment. God's choice and God's faithfulness to save those who are His is certain. We see that in verse 27. He can be trusted with confidence to save those who are His. And God's wrath against those who are rebellious and reject Him is also certain. And friends, that's a warning for all sinners. The Lord is patient. We saw that in verse 22. The Lord is patient. He could pour out His wrath immediately on all sin. And and He relents. He's patient. He waits for sinners to come to Him in repentance. But that, that patience is not infinite. There is an end to the patience. And at, at one point, He will pour out His wrath on those who reject Him. That's what's happening in verse 28. God is right to elect and save whom He desires, and He is right to judge those who are rebellious against Him and who are hardened in their rebellion against Him. And what we're seeing in this verse is that God will accomplish what He desires in relation to election and mercy and salvation, and He will accomplish what He desires in wrath as well. And He's right to do that. And friends, if if you believe, this ought to lead, lead you to great thankfulness and great gratitude. This, this is the kind of thing that leads you to respond the way Paul did in verse 33 of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How, how and why has He worked this amazing grace in us? But that also means that because we have received such mercy from Him, we need to be communicating that mercy to others Chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? So, chapter 9 is all about God's electing and choosing. And chapter 10 is all about how you must respond in faith. And you must believe. And how how will someone who has not heard about Christ hear? And how will they believe whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to tell them. And friend, if you have received this mercy, it is incumbent on us to tell others how they also can receive this mercy. And friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, if you're, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're on the outside looking in, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 8. What does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the Word of faith which we are preaching. You are hearing the word of salvation. You must respond in faith. You you must believe. You you must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And then verse 9, you will be saved. If you trust Christ, you will be saved. And spared from the wrath that God might rightly send on you. Oh friend, In His mercy, God will accomplish His choice of Israel and even accomplish His just destruction of unbelieving Israel. There's a third manifestation of God's mercy. In His mercy, verse 29, God spares His people from His just wrath. In verse 29, Paul is quoting from Isaiah 
chapter 1, that passage that we read earlier this morning. And we need to address the question of what, what Isaiah is talking about. What, what, what's Paul, or excuse me, what's Isaiah's meaning in Isaiah chapter 1? You remember that, that the prophet is denouncing the nation for her rebellion against God, for her rejection of God, for her sin against God. Verse 4, they have abandoned God. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And because of their rejection of God, there has been judgment that has come on them. Your land is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them. Strangers are coming up. And in your presence, they're eating and they're getting the, the blessing of, of what you have sowed for food. And desola- it is desolation as overthrown by strangers. And, and into that... He says, unless the Lord of hosts had left a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. We would be destroyed as certainly as Sodom and Gomorrah were. And when, when, when the Scripture writers talk about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, two things to pay attention to. One, Sodom and Gomorrah are always spoken of, every circumstance in Scripture, they're always spoken of as, as worthy recipients of God's condemnation. So God rightly poured out His wrath against them. And secondly, it always refers to the totality of God's wrath against them. They were completely wiped out and destroyed. And so Paul, excuse me, Isaiah is saying here in verse 9, we we would have been like Sodom. We would have been rightly destroyed and completely eradicated. And his point is, even as the covenant people, it would have been right but something interjected. Unless the Lord of hosts... Who's the Lord of hosts? He's the Lord of the armies. Which armies? The armies of heaven. The hosts refers to the angelic beings, the supernatural beings, the, the greatest of all of God's created beings in, in power. And God is Lord over them. All of the vast multitudes of the heavenly armies, the Lord is master over them. And it is that master, that powerful one who has acted and he left survivors. He, he was merciful. And he was gracious. He could have been unrelenting in his wrath and completely wiped us out. But he has left us survivors. Paul, as he quotes this verse, says that he has left a posterity to Judah. Literally, the word is a seed. And I think the apostle would have us to hear the the reference to the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 22 that refers to the seed that comes from Abraham. He's left a seed, a people. He's left a remnant How is Paul using this verse in Isaiah chapter 1? He is using it to remind us that God would have been just in condemning Israel for her sin. That only a remnant is saved is indicative of the mercy of God. It is only because of the love and the mercy of God that Israel was spared in Isaiah's day. And it is only because of the love and mercy of God that Israel is spared in Paul's day and will be spared in the future. And Paul also wants us to see 
and be reminded that Israel's rejection is not total. There is hope for her. God's promise to the nation has not failed. He has been merciful. He has been faithful. And He has been just. We can trust Him to do what He has done. If you're still in Romans chapter 9, just turn over a couple of pages to Romans 11 and see this. Just as once, he's talking to the Romans, talking to Gentiles, just as once you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, Israel's disobedience. So you were disobedient, Israel was disobedient, and because of Israel's disobedience, God enfolded you into the plan and gave you mercy. Verse 31, So these also now have been disobedient. That's Israel. That because of the mercy shown to you, that they also may now be shown mercy. So, so you were disobedient, Israel's disobedient, and because of Israel's disobedient, God is merciful to you. Now because of God's mercy to you, there's mercy given to Israel. Notice verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that He may show mercy to all. This is God's mercy. It's undeserved, friends. It's undeserved for Israel. It's undeserved for us. He's a merciful God. And when He pours out His mercy, He is faithful to keep those on whom He has showered His mercy. Let's just wrap this up quickly. What is God's relationship to Israel? God has elected the nation of Israel to be His people. That's Genesis 12. 13, 15, 17, 22. They're His people. They're His covenant people, His eternal people. The election of the nation, though, never meant that all individual Israelites would be saved. He chooses the nation to be His. Ultimately, one day, one generation of that nation will be saved in its entirety. But the choosing of the nation does not mean that all individuals along the way will be saved. Even when the nation rebelled in disobedience, there was always a remnant of individuals that was saved, and I should have written there, by mercy. It's God's merciful choice. It's God's merciful action that saves individuals within the remnant of God's people. There is coming a day when the nation as a nation will be saved. Friends, God has made a promise to Israel and He has been, is, and will be faithful to that promise. Because He is a faithful God, we can trust Him. We asked the question at the beginning of the service, is God faithful? Is He merciful? Is God faithful and merciful even when He pours out His wrath against sinners from His chosen people, Israel? Oh, friends, He is a faithful God that you can trust. As Paul will say at the end of this chapter, and we'll see it next week, he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. You will never be disappointed in God if you believe in Him.
Of what use is this faithfulness to us? Listen to what A.W. Pink writes in his helpful book, The Attributes of God. The apprehension of this blessed truth will preserve us from worry. To be full of care, to view our situation with dark forebodings, to anticipate the moral with sad anxiety, is to reflect poorly on the faithfulness of God. The apprehension of this blessed truth will check our murmurings. The Lord knows what is best for each of us. And one effect of resting on this truth will be the silencing of our petulant complainings. God is greatly honored when, under trial and chastening, we have good thoughts of Him, vindicate His wisdom and justice, and recognize His love in His very rebukes. The apprehension of this blessed truth will beget increasing confidence in God. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. When we trustfully resign ourselves and all of our affairs into God's hands, fully persuaded of His love and faithfulness, the sooner shall we be satisfied with His providence and realize that He doeth all things well. Yes, God is a faithful God. Even when we are rebellious, He is faithful. We can trust Him. Father, would You help us? Our faith is weak. Our faith is frail. Would You help us to see the magnitude of Your faithfulness? And might we trust You in all things? Strengthen us. Embolden us. Make us to trust You. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.